This is Downtown, the podcast, episode 15. Welcome, Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you. Our podcast coming to you from Bangor, Maine, and brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. On this week's edition of the podcast, a couple of interesting conversations. Comedian Paula Poundstone and author Mark Deano, who talks about his terrific new book, Gods of Wood and Stone. Let's get things underway by by a woman who's been making people laugh for the better part of uh, more than 30 years now. Paula Poundstone brings her comedy to Jonathan's in a gunquip, Maine. Later this month, August 17th and 18th, she's a frequent visitor to the state, hosts her own podcast, author of a recently published book, and of course appears quite frequently on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Here's our conversation with comedian Paula Poundstone. Any advice, Paula, anything you can share that can help us on our way? Oh, I got advice. (laughs) Keep your cat senses in single digits. (laughs) That's that's always a good idea. Great advice. Yeah, it is. It, I, I, they are a, they. Oh, that's my cat Clue uh, sneezing. Um, they're full time job. Uh, I'm 14, so I, you know, I'm five over the limit really, uh, census wise. Um, and uh, and oh, all right. Here's a piece of advice. Whenever you find something small like a screw or a little piece of metal. Or something that you can't really identify. Tape it to a cabinet door in the kitchen. I like that. No. What happens is somebody will walk by it and go, "Oh, that's where that is." And if you just throw it away, then uh, the refrigerator door falls off. Now that's kind of the same advice I heard you share on your podcast about taping uh, your kids' meds and things of that sort to yourself. Yes. I, 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 I did do that. I, I, I'm a big advocate of uh, adhesive strips. Um, I used to tape my kids' meds to my shirt in the morning so that when I was running around uh, and, and I had to, you know, like I got up before they did, and I'm running around doing my, getting everybody ready and doing my thing, eventually somebody says to me, what's that on your shirt? And I go, oh, my gosh, yeah. And then I... It works the same if you have the phone call that you have to make and you keep forgetting. Just tape it to your shirt. Tape the phone number to your shirt. And, and somebody somewhere will say, well, what is that? And you go, oh, that's right. I have to call that person. I'm very big on adhesive strips. This is good advice. It's usable advice. Now, uh, Paula, the last time you were on with us, uh, it's been a couple of years. It was just about two years ago, as a matter of fact. And uh, it was, of course, an election year. And we talked quite a bit about the Trump phenomenon, and I think we both assumed and at I was the time. sure it meant nothing. Yeah, we, yeah, we both thought that. Well, everybody thought that. Uh, how'd that work out for us? Oh, my gosh. I'm still throwing up a couple times each morning. <laughs> I'm applying, applying cold compresses. That's my next advice. I don't, I don't know. It's, uh, we've been in... Uh, we've, uh, every morning I get up and I expect to see Tweedledum and Tweedledee beside my bed. It's uh, we've been in Alice in Wonderland land for quite a while now, but uh, I don't know. We'll see. You travel the country. You, you good advice. Yeah. If Mueller is behind you in traffic, pull over. Let him go. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. I want him to use his time the very best he can. I don't want him if he's in, if, if, if if he's in front of you with the Seven Eleven line, 
you know, getting some snacks or something, tap them on the shoulder and say, you go, I got this. <laughs> or even if you saw the picture last week, even if you're at the airport and you notice uh, the, the gentleman sitting comfortably in his suit reading the paper, not being impatient, is Robert Mueller. And then you see, oh, look, there's Don Jr. in his camo hat on his cell phone up at the counter wondering why he hasn't been seated yet. You get those two to switch position, you get Mueller on that plane. That's right. Yeah, but what a what a freakish coincidence, huh? <laughs> Everything well, about our world is freakish right now. Small town. I don't know where they were. <laughs> it, it is very bizarre indeed. So, as somebody who travels the country, are do you find that we are as divided a nation as it seems we are at times? Well, you know, I don't have a bird's eye on that because um, you're right. I work all around the country. Um, but the people who come to see me, uh, and I'm so lucky. I have great audiences that come to see me uh, everywhere I am, and um, most of them are familiar with me already. And so it's not like, yeah, you, you know, you know what I mean. So they already know, you know. And and by the way, the Republicans are welcome at my shows, um, I, as are independents. Um, uh, it's not, it's not like I do a show that's sort of all, but, but there is a certain flavor, I suppose, of, uh, hold on, my other phone's ringing. You know who it is? I don't. I'm sure, I'm sure it's my manager who doesn't know my schedule. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's, uh, some of my beliefs be it social or political, or expressed during my show. And so people who really don't like that simply wouldn't come for the most part. And so I really am, you know, my manager always used to say to me, like, if it's going to work like Kansas, you know, she'd be like, oh, that's a red state. And I'd say, you know what, I have the best time in Kansas. Because it's not like it's all people of one way of thinking. Right. In fact, we're pretty mixed and it, it, maybe it's the majority is there. But so people come to see me. It's a little bit, when I work in a red state, it's a little bit, I think, like when they made The Wizard of Oz and they hired little people from around the country. And they had never been with people like themselves in that way before. And so when they got together, it was just a joyous free-for-all. Um, in fact... Um, they had orgies. That doesn't happen at my shows. Let me just put in that uh, disclaimer. But, yeah, I think it's a little bit like that. So does that, that make you like the mayor of Munchkinland? I am the, I am the mayor of Munchkinland. <laughs> that is fantastic. We're talking to Paula Poundstone. She'll be back in Maine for two shows at Jonathan's on a gun quit August 17th and 18th because uh, shrewd veteran performer that you are, you, you always know to come to Maine at the absolute perfect time of year. I love Maine. Uh, well, you know what? The truth is, I go, I go to multiple places in Maine multiple times a year, and I think, I'm, I, 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 I think I feel the best when I go during mud season because I just, you know, then it feels like a service. <laughs> you, you know, it just feels like, you know, gives people... Yes, you know, laughter is so important. It's so healthy, and uh, and uh, and and uh, you know, during mud season, I think it's a, a, you know, it's a necessity. It should be in your survival kit. 
we need our Paula time here in Maine. Lucky teeth, maybe, or something in your survival kit. But so, yeah, but I feel very lucky to get to go to Jonathan's in the summer because it is gorgeous there. We're talking to Paula Poundstone, and if you haven't heard it yet, you can check out her brand new podcast titled, who came up with the title? I love it. Nobody listens to Paula Poundstone. Me. That's fantastic. (laughs) I just used my life experience. I drew upon my life experience to come up with a title. Um, yeah, it's really been fun. It's um, my, my, my partner on the show is uh, Adam Felber, with whom I did another podcast last year uh, called Live from the Poundstone Institute. And the Institute ran into some, um, what do you call it, endowment problem. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, so we now, we're, now we're doing Live from the now we're doing the Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. And I met Adam originally um, doing Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And uh, we are good friends in real life and uh, just have a hoot, um, you know, thinking of things we think are funny and saying them. And, and the, we, we, we call it a, a, a comedy advice uh, podcast. Um, but, you know, the truth is, I mean, and, and the people that we have on to talk to us are indeed you know, uh, knowledgeable in their fields. Mm. Um, uh, and so if you go away from listening to the podcast, you go, oh, my gosh, I didn't think of that. That was very funny. Well, at least you go away with some real information. Um, but uh, but I'm hoping that's not – I'm hoping that never happens. I, well, I, I don't think it will. I think people are people are pretty sharp here. Uh, you Now, you've also – uh, since last we talked, you've come out with a book. It's it, we'll call it still relatively new. Came out last year. The totally unscientific study of the search for human happiness uh, in the world of of fake news. Uh, you're now a fake scientist. I think that's wonderful. I am a yeah. I am a fake scientist. Um, but I of course admit right up front that it's <laughs> totally unscientific scientific method. What I did was my book is a series of experiments doing things that I or other people thought would make me happy. And uh, I, I, uh, every chapter is written as an experiment um, with the conditions and the variables and the hypothesis and uh, the field notes and the quantitative and qualitative uh, observations. But for me, the real question wasn't whether I would enjoy doing something, because I, I have a handle on what I enjoy. The question was, what could I do that would give me a bounce so that when I returned... Uh, you know, to the slings and arrows of my regular life, um, I, you know, I had some gas in the tank still. Um, and uh, so the analysis part of each chapter um, is the story of my regular life, raising a house full of kids and animals and uh, being a stand-up comic and just being stuck being me 24 hours a day. And uh, so in the end, um, it took seven years to write for a variety of reasons, one being that the experiments sometimes were... Uh, we're lengthy. <laughs> um, and I mean, I have two chapters on getting organized uh, uh, because that takes forever. Um, but uh, it, it, in the end, it's, 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 it's number one job is to be funny. And I think it I think it manages that. Um, but it's the story of of, uh, of of raising my kids. And uh, it is a it's an imperfect story. Speaking of kids, what did you want to do when you were a kid? And when did when did stand-up comedy become something you consider? But what did, what did you think you might be doing as a grown-up person out there in the world? 
Uh, well, when uh, the first sentence of the last paragraph of the summary letter written by my kindergarten teacher in May of 1965 says, I have enjoyed many of Paul's humorous comments about our activities. <laughs> and uh, I was familiar with the idea of, uh, you know, being a comedian. I mean, I remember people using the word comedian to me before I even knew what the word meant. Um, but uh, so for a long time, I actually, I did want to, I, I didn't want to be a comic actress at one point when I was younger. But, you know, as I moved through the depressing teenage years, what I thought I would do shifted. Um, when I was 19, I, I went to, or was it, no, excuse me, 18. I went to, uh, I went to, down to Disney World because I wanted to be a bear in the Disney World Parade. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I also had a theory that I could live in the small world exhibit. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so my grasp on reality has vacillated over the years. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, at one point I thought I would work my way up from table busing to managing a restaurant, but the truth is I probably wouldn't have been very good at that, although I was a gifted table busser um, because I have OCD, and that makes <laughs> that makes for some powerful table cleaning. Well, yeah, attention to detail right there. Exactly, yes. And, and, and no, uh, yeah, no, I actually I very much enjoyed busing tables and, and still doing my own home. Um, oops, it's a cat. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 in, in truth, being a comic uh, it was a lifelong dream, and uh, there, were, there were times where, uh, where I, dropped, I dropped the line for a little while here and there, and then I would sort of pick it up again. And, and, and really, in the end, it, it had almost nothing to do with me. In the end, it was time and place. Um, I happened to be living in Boston in 1979 when um, busing tables for a living, when the... Um, you know, comedy, uh, when the open mic night circuit surfaced, having nothing to do with me at all. And I went and partook. And, uh, you know, and then I worked really hard. Uh, on a serious note, uh, we were all saddened to hear of the passing uh, a little while back of the great Carl Castle. Uh, as fans of, of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, was he as wonderful a person uh, there on the show as he seemed to those of us who listen? He was terrific. And you know what? He enjoyed the heck out of doing Wait, Wait. You know, in some ways it was, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know what at what point he was planning to retire from doing, you know, Morning Edition. But um, I think he, uh, I think he was given some added years, um, both of both of work and therefore of life. Um, uh, you know, just really enjoying. I mean, my favorite thing. It was his uh, Britney Spears impression, which, by the way, was really just sort of, uh, you know, a falsetto, nondescript. Uh, but it just made me laugh so hard that he was doing it. And uh, he because he, they would have a section of the show. Um, Bill uh, 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 does it now. Bill Curtis. But they have a, a section of the show called Who's it was called Who's Carl this time. <laughs> And they would have him do a quote from someone in the news that week. And I just, you know, for a little while, you know, Britney Spears was sort of out and about a lot. And one kept hearing from her. And uh, it would come up for Carl to do the impression of her. And it just gave me joy. And, and you know what? It gave him joy. 
Paula, I came to parenting a, a bit late in life. Uh, I've got a, a four and a half year old getting ready to start school here in the fall. Uh, what do I need to know to prepare myself for this next phase in our adventure? Oh my gosh. Well, I've got nothing but bad news. <laughs> <laughs> it's agonizing. I'm telling you, I'm get, getting my oldest daughter through school may have been the hardest thing I ever did in my life. And, 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 and I like to think I've readily faced challenges here and there. Um, at one point in high school, she, uh, on her report card, she changed a D in science into a, uh, no, it was a D minus in science into a D plus <laughs> using a marker. It was hard not to laugh when I talked to her about it. I said, that's good, honey. That's what the colleges look for is a high D in the sciences. <laughs> he said, you're on your way to MTI. Um, I, I, you know what? I showed her how to make a D into a B. I said, in the future, you have a little self-respect. That's uh, a life skill. I like that. Right? Exactly. You know, if you're going to, if you're, yeah, if you're going to uh, alter documents, uh, if you're going to alter legal documents, you need to know how. Um, she's, she seems to be beyond that now, and that's good. I'm glad to uh, hear but, that. Uh, yeah, you know what? Here's some advice. No screen devices. I like that advice a lot. Yes, definitely. You know what? They cause brain damage. They really disturb the developing brain. They're not good for any of us, is the truth. But there's no reason in the world for a little kid... There's so much to learn, so much to do, so much to look at um, in, in, in real life. You don't need to be, you don't need to be on a, on a you know, flat thing um, to do it. And, and they cause so many problems, some of which are just recently um, getting some acknowledgement. Um, but a lot of parents have known for a long time because we made the mistake. Um, and, uh, and, and schools, you know... Uh, drank the Kool-Aid uh, for the same reason I did, which is thinking you were giving your kid a leg up. Right. And educationally, they're disastrous. And I, so I, I was thinking, too. your school that you don't want your kid on a flat thing. I, I feel like we've done kids a disservice, too, because I, I think back to when I was a kid growing up in the 60s, and, and some of the best days were days when I didn't have anything to do, and I just had to use my imagination and find a way to entertain myself. And I worry that maybe we've taken that option away from kids today. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And, you know, right now um, we have the highest level of depression in, in like, young people, like little kids, um, that we've had since they've recorded such information. And... I heard, I was at a conference on this topic not too long ago in Boston, and I heard someone say something that was just brilliant and jarring, and they said, hope requires imagination. Absolutely. And so you're right. By taking that opportunity away from them, we're, we're doing untold harm. We're doing harm, harm that we don't even, we're not even sure about. And it's not always what they're doing, uh, although the screen's bad for them. It's also what they're not doing during that time. You know, when we were kids, we used to, I was raised in a small town in Massachusetts. We used to climb trees and read. It was a thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, Ann Sullivan took Helen Keller up in a tree to read. 
it was a thing. But now you ask a kid, do you ever climb a tree and read? And they look at you like you have two heads. <laughs> Although I will say that here in California, I find a lot of the branches aren't low enough. Ah, well, yeah, there's that too. Plus, it's it's hard to to get your uh, electrical cord up in that tree if you're charging your exactly. device. Exactly, no charger time. up in that pine bough. Exactly. Um, uh, Paula, before we let you go, uh, how do we all deal with the profound depression that comes with the news that the NRA is in serious financial trouble and may not be able to keep their, their wonderful television network going? Well, I, you know, I have to say, David Hogg said the other day, and I realize he's, he, you know, he's only a, a boy, but he did say something really interesting, and he might be right. He said he thinks they're putting that out there so that it activates their donors. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, it makes sense. Right? If you felt like they were solvent and you were a supporter, then you you would you know you wouldn't necessarily get your checkbook out. But if you feel like you know if you feel like you know you want to you want to tote you want to tote a machine gun around and they're and they're and they're struggling, well, you'd want to write them a, write them a check. By the way, which of your teachers would you want to see? Uh, <laughs> looking back, right? Trump's idea about how the teachers carry guns. Which of your teachers do you think was the right one for that job? Oh, yeah. I, yeah I'm a teacher now, and I, I, I've said to my students, do you want me carrying a gun? And they, they, the fear washes over their face. Like, <laughs> God, no. And there are some even worse than you, Mr. Kimball. I'm like, yeah, imagine that one down the hall. I don't name names, of course, but they know who I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> we, have a, we had a history teacher that would write on the board, but he didn't write words. He would might maybe write the first letter of what he was saying, and then he would just do these sort of, you know, odd, and they weren't drawings of anything. He just, it was just a sort of weird thing that he did where he moved the chalk around while he was talking as if there was a correlation between the chalk and what he was saying. <laughs> uh, and, I, 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 you know, it was Emperor's New Clothes for years. Everybody thought he was genius. Um, and years later, I started saying to some of my classmates, like, you know, I don't think he really taught anything to you. And they all kind of went, no. <laughs> I walk in the teacher's bathroom on a, on a regular basis and find car keys, glasses, lesson plans. Oh, right. Left on the on the sink or the back of the toilet. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I, I, I'm next, I'm, next year I'll walk in and I'll find somebody's revolver in there because they left yeah, him up. Yeah, their Glock. Yeah. I, you know, in, when I was in elementary school, the teacher's lounge was the most... Uh, exotic place I could possibly think of. It was the door to the teacher's lounge was right beside where we lined up for the cafeteria. And, and of course, it was when the teachers took their breaks. And so uh, the door to the teacher's lounge would open, because this is 60s, and smoke yes, would yes. blow out of it. <laughs> and one time a teacher asked me to bring a note to another teacher in the teacher's lounge. And... Uh, it was like a long walk. Um, I opened the door. I, I swear I'm not making this up. They had the lights off in there. I think there was candlelight. It was, it was, I, I'm pretty sure there was a bar. I'm sure they drank. It was, uh, it was, very, it was like, I, it was like a tiki bar or something in there. <laughs> a black light, lava lamps. Yes, exactly. I don't want them packing heat. No, no, that's a bad, bad idea. All around. Paula Poundstone returns to Maine for shows August 17th and 18th at Jonathan's in Agunquit. Paula, it's always a delight to talk with you. Thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Thanks for having me. It was fun. You take care. That's Paula Poundstone on Downtown, the podcast. A brief break. And when we return, 
Author Mark Diano joins us. First, this from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Five years ago, two friends teamed up to create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing. A nice brewing company was born. Based in Limerick, Maine, right in the foothills of the White Mountains, Dustin and Tim combine a love of beer, science, and their German heritage for truly unique brews. Whether it's the nice Weiss, the Sun and Shine, their Stouts, Porters, IPAs, or any of the seasonal offerings, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nice, now available in cans. Ask for beers at your favorite restaurant, bar, or wherever they sell great beer. Nice Brewing Company, G-N-E-I-S-S. Work hard, play hard. Be nice. On Downtown, the podcast, Mark Diano is a longtime columnist for the Star-Ledger in Newark. He's a Pulitzer Prize finalist and the author of a wonderful new book called Gods of Wood and Stone, a book that takes place in Cooperstown, New York, a bit of a culture clash between a blacksmith who doesn't understand, in many ways, the modern world, especially one that finds adulation for sports heroes, and a longtime Red Sox catcher who's about to be inducted into baseball's Hall of Fame. The book is Gods of Wood and Stone. We talked about it with author Mark Diano. This is uh, such a fun book. I, I loved it. And uh, for you, it's uh, it's an interesting uh, chance to tap in to a lot of your talents as a guy who started as a sports writer for the New York Post and uh, now working as a columnist. Uh, you bring all of those skills together in writing about these uh, two very distinctive characters in this book. Well, I'm also the father of six children, uh, so uh, I think maybe more than anything uh, that factored in. But when I broke into sports writing, you know, in the uh, in the 1980s, um, there were guys that were sort of on the cusp of being the old old breed, and uh, and you know, and and they were marching off the timeline. Guys like Carlton Fisk and Jack uh, Youngblood from the Rams and and he's sort of old-time athletes. And um, Carlton Fisk had a confrontation with Deion Sanders uh, once at Yankee Stadium. And, and I wrote a column about it. You know, uh, you know, Carlton Fisk had to spend two years in the National Guard before he could play professional baseball. And, you know, Deion Sanders was uh, there with the diamond earrings and the chains, and he was uh, a million-dollar bonus baby in two leagues. And so this this conflict of cultures really interested to me. And so uh, in the book, uh, the ball player uh, is Joe Grudick, uh, Boston Red Sox catcher. Um, and his, his playing life is sort of um, uh, modeled after Carlton Fisk. Uh, and that's it, because I don't know Carlton Fisk uh, at all. But um, 
you know, he's just like the last of the old time ball players and uh, kind of disgusted with the way things have gone in his sport. Yeah, and Joe Grudek uh, about to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. And uh, every time there's a retrospective on his career, one of the images that is always shown is him cleaning out a guy in a brawl. And so he is the quintessential baseball tough guy. Yeah, he's a baseball tough guy. And that's one of the elements of the book, Rich, is that um, the other character in the book, who is a blacksmith at the Farm Museum in Cooperstown, um, is the uh, 19th century tough guy. You know, the blacksmith was the was the epitome of masculinity. He was the guy that put his hands in the fire, and he could bend metal and uh, lift up the leg of a horse. And in the 19th century rural America, it was the blacksmith who was uh, who was uh, held up as as you know as a man. Uh, and that gave way to the athlete in modern times. And so uh, because the setting is in Cooperstown and the Farm Museum is a real place and the Hall of Fame is a real place, uh, I set the book there to show this um, cultural clash of you know rural America versus modern America, um, uh, popular culture. One guy is on the one spectrum that is, you know, is almost forgotten. He's, he's toiling in the dark in a, in a museum, Smithy, and the other guy is always in the light. He's always under the lights, and uh, and he's famous. And so uh, the characters are very much the same kind of man, um, all caught, both wishing that things were the way they used to be, uh, but they're also very different in terms of uh, where they are uh, on the spectrum of popularity. Also very interesting in the the way they have dealt with women and relationships in their lives. Uh, Joe Grudek has never been married, has uh, taken advantages of his celebrity along the way when it comes to his interactions with women. And Horace Mueller has a wife, but it is, boy, it's not a happy marriage. It's it's painful reading that chapter where we learn what that relationship is like with his wife. Someone told me that uh, the opening of Horace Mueller's uh, uh, the chapter where, where he's, he's, he's waking up next to his wife is the best description of marital discord they ever read. <laughs> so I think, and I've been divorced twice, so I think that's another area of expertise. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's funny because, uh, because I always say to people, you know, if there's one thing I know about women, it's that I don't know anything about women. <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> You know, uh, yeah, but I do know about, uh, you know, uh, romantic discord, and I do know about, uh, you know, having been around ballplayers, know what gets thrown at them, and uh, and how callous they can be at times about women. Um, you know, this is no secret. And so um, the, the ballplayer in the book, Joe Grudick, has his Me Too moment uh, when he's a very, very, very young man, a minor leaguer, but then he grows to kind of hate himself for that and detest what he sees around him while he also, you know, picks his spots and, uh, and he's so emotionally detached from these women that it's just all about, you know, one night stands and, and paid for sex because he, he doesn't trust that anybody will love him for who he is, just what he is. 
And and that I think is the strongest theme of the book is the alienation of celebrity. That yeah. you know, for Joe Grudick, it's not about who he is; it's about who he was, and that's what it's going to be for the rest of his life. And, and I thought it's going to be that guy. And I thought one of the most poignant parts of the book was that that celebrity extended to his father, and that his father identified himself as Joe's dad, and, and, and he keeps saying, that's not how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to look up to your father. He's the guy you put up on a pedestal. Right, and uh, I think, again, one of the most poignant scenes is, the, is when the father's dying, and he's, keeping, he's asking, he's asking uh, his son about how he did last night, and what, what are your playoff chances, and you know, how you hit, and how you see the ball. And at that point, uh, Joe Grudick re- realizes in his whole life, you know, since from Little League on, he's never had a conversation with anybody about anything but himself and how he is doing in a sport. And, um, and that's a, a, a very kind of a heartbreaking revelation to him that everyone close to him identifies him only as an athlete and no one has ever really, and he hasn't allowed anyone ever to get any closer to him. We're talking with Mark Diano about his book, Gods of Wood and Stone. Uh, your experience as a parent certainly came to bear in writing about the relationship between Horace Mueller and his son, who, as fate would have it, turns out to be uh, not only a lover of sports, but a very good athlete himself. That causes some tensions in the family. And, uh, boy, nothing more awkward in that family relationship than that that birthday celebration when... The son and his friends want to go to the Hall of Fame, and instead they spend way too much time at the Farm Museum. Yeah, that was uh, one of my favorite scenes in the book, and Horace is oblivious to his son's wishes, but he is also uh, so damn determined to create a well-rounded kid that, you know, he's blinded by that. Now, I have six children. I have three boys and three girls. And they all played sports. And so I spent, um, I have custody of my younger four children. I'm a single father with four kids, you know, and I, through their junior high school and middle middle school and high school years and their sports years. And so, you know, I was the guy who was caddying them around to all these places. Um, and I remember uh, one Mother's Day, my daughter, had, my youngest daughter had a uh, a soccer game, a travel soccer game on Mother's Day. And I said to the coach, you know, if her mom was still around, we wouldn't be here. You know, this is like just, you know, you know, give it a break, man. You know, Mother's Day, we got to have, you know, we got to travel to three counties to play a, a, you know, an 11 year old girl soccer game. Like, and you know, you guys know, you know very well, you know, these these youth sports have become 24 seven traveling teams and money makers and, uh, you know, um, and this kind of stuff. And, and everything else is falling by the wayside. You know, Boy Scouts, church, um, knowledge of nature, knowledge of constellations, uh, you know, knowledge of a greater world around you is, is falling by the wayside because of, of youth sports. And our kids really aren't learning anything uh, beyond that, and they're breaking down. You know, that's the other thing. You know, they're being, their bodies are being punished. And Horace, the blacksmith, sees this. He's like, this is crazy. Like, you know, we're, this kid, all he does is play baseball. He doesn't know anything else at this point. And he wants to pull him back and teach him about what he sees as the authentic 
culture of America, not the pop culture driven by sports and entertainment celebrity. I also think uh, it seems to me that a recurring theme in the book is is the idea of masculinity, what it means to be a man, what it meant for Horace and uh, for Joe when they were growing up, and what it means for the next generation. Yeah, I think that's a great topic, and um, and you know one of my one of my goals as a writer is to sort of bring literary fiction back to men. You know, when my agent took on the book, he said, you know, don't be uh, don't be don't be surprised if we don't sell the book because nobody wants to read about middle-aged disillusioned white guys. <laughs> well, that's because nobody puts out anything for them. You know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe if there were books that, you know, captured their lives, uh, you know, like, like the old days with, you know, Updike and Cheever and these guys, you know, maybe, maybe you'd find that they do sell. So, um, you know, I think that is a big subject. You know, what's happened to masculinity? What's happened to manhood? Uh, you know, uh, you know how men, as uh, you know, in our protective nature, um, are lampooned for that now. Um, you know, uh, I think that many fathers feel in in their households that um, you know the mom and the children sort of run in the same orbit, and dads on the outside mm. looking in. And, uh, you know, certainly I think, you know, we're men of around the same generation, I imagine. And, you know, when your father and my father uh, were in the house, they were, um, you know, they were respected. You know, you know, you watch television and every commercial, you know, the dad or the father, the, the, the imbecile, you know, he's the, there's this whole culture of uh, debasing, debasing uh, manhood and debasing fatherhood. And I don't think I'm paranoid when I say that. I think that's a pretty... That's a pretty valid uh, observation. And now I understand why I, I like the book so much. It's because I, I now I realize, thank you, Mark, what a disillusioned middle-aged white guy I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, I'm in the newspaper business, so, you know. <laughs> well, I, well I, I do radio and then teach school, so I, you know, I can't win either way. Right, right. And I got a four-year-old running around at home and trying to figure out how to help him navigate through the, the rocky shoals of, of being a young man in, in this day and age. Uh, can I, I don't want to give away too much because uh, well, I don't want any spoilers here, but I have to say the opening of the book, that's about as uh, solid and memorable and unforgettable an opening. Can you, can you describe briefly what sets up learning the background of these two characters when they meet each other at Cooperstown? Well, I think the most interesting part of this, uh, that opening, and I, you know, we'll tell, I, we'll, we'll tell people. Maybe it'll make them interested in reading the book. Um, the, the blacksmith jumps up on the stage and uh, with a long, a long, uh, long uh, uh, handled hammer, smashes the induction plaque of Joe Grudick. And Joe Grudick has absolutely no idea who this guy is or why he's attacking him. He's got no idea. And one of the interesting parts is there is, you know, you know that description of Joe Grudick's catcher's eyes. He takes everything in so quickly and, and evaluates it, you know, from all those years behind the plate. And so he recognizes right away that the guy doesn't have a gun, that he's bootlegging a hammer or something else. And so he doesn't run from the stage. He's going to, in his Joe Grudick way, he's going to take this guy on. And there, a fight ensues. Um, and uh, Grudick is injured in the fight. And it's a, 
and it's another example of his deterioration of his body and his, you know, his aches and pains. And the blacksmith, man is about the same age and same, same size. He's been working hard, you know, all mm. these years. You know, he's, he's, he's ready for it. And the irony there is that it keeps Joe from giving this speech that he's thought about so long and so hard that probably would have found a rapt audience in Horace. Right. And exactly. That's exactly that. that that's exactly the point of the book is that these two guys are so similar, but because they are on the opposite ends of the popular culture spectrum, uh, you know, uh, Horace makes Grudick out to be this mortal enemy, and it's over a misunderstanding involving Horace's son. And so the way I wrote the book was, you know, I, I thought that the best structure was to start with that incident at the induction ceremony and then work back towards how these two guys ended up on a collision course. And I think that was the right choice, you know, um, mm. Rich, you know, when you when you structure a book, you know, you just don't know sometimes if if you're going in the right direction. But I think it held people's attention, and they wanted to know, you know, what the hell's this guy? What, what the hell happened? Absolutely, uh, so. I, I think it's a terrific read. Two uh, really powerful characters in Horace and Joe. And uh, look, if you're a baseball fan, you're going to love it. But even if you don't care about baseball, uh, you're going to find this a really compelling read. The book is Gods of Wood and Stone. Uh, Mark Dion, a wonderful book, and it's so great to talk with you. Thanks for making time for us this afternoon. Rich, thanks very much. And if you're a blacksmith fan, you'll like the book, too. Yeah, uh, and they are, you know, they're coming back. Uh, we're making America great again, right? You bet. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. All right, sir. Thank you. Author Mark Diano, his great book is called Gods of Wood and Stone. Happy to talk with him about it. Glad to have you join us as well on this week's edition of Downtown, the podcast. Thanks to Mark and thanks to the very funny Paula Poundstone for visiting with us as well. Podcast brought to you by Nice Brewing Company, German style beer from the woods of Maine, and by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time on Downtown the Podcast.